Good evening. We begin the readout tonight with breaking news in the investigation of January 6th. Just hours ago, the select committee issued subpoenas to four of Donald Trump's most prominent lawyers, aides and advisors, all of whom set the stage for his attempted coup. They include Trump attorney Jenna Ellis, Trump legal advisor Sidney Powell and senior Trump campaign aide and chief propagandist Boris Epstein. But the marquee name tonight is Rudy Giuliani, Trump's infamous TV lawyer and the former New York mayor, who's also under federal investigation for his dealings in Ukraine. All four of tonight's subpoena targets are responsible for the big lie that continues to threaten the very foundations of our democracy. Together, they peddled that lie to a mass audience, saturating the airwaves of conservative media with unproven and often false claims that the election was stolen. And so doing, they not only rallied the Trump faithful to take action, they also laid the groundwork for a more sophisticated plot to subvert the election. That plot was outlined by Jenna Ellis in a secret memo urging Mike Pence to reject the electors from six states because, she falsely claimed, their results were in dispute. No surprise, the committee has indicated tonight that Ellis's memo will be a subject in her deposition. They're also interested in a phone call between Boris Epstein and Trump on the morning of January 6th, where options were discussed to delay the certification of election results in light of Pence's unwillingness to deny or delay certification. Additionally, Epstein and Giuliani both took part in the so-called war room meetings at the Willard Hotel. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Um, let, let's just jump right into this. I'm going to start with you, Barbara. So we have um, what really does look like a, a conspiracy sort of layout here um, in terms of what the January 6th committee is asking for, where you have all of these numerous groups that seem to be honing in on these false electors. We know false electors were submitted. We know Mike Pence refused to certify them and ignored them and even spoke to it uh, on the floor of the United States Senate. What do you make of these requests and who they're specifically asking to talk to? Well, I think uh, we've seen that the January 6th committee has a, a various teams that are going after different aspects of the Stop the Steal movement, you know, looking at what happened at the Capitol that day. But this is the one that actually goes to that higher level. And that's why I think it's so interesting. Uh, Boris Epstein was, it, 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 the letter says to him, was actually present at the Willard Hotel when some of the strategy was being discussed. He was on the telephone with Donald Trump on January 6th, talking about some of these things. Jenna Ellis, who wrote this memo about the, the strategy, these are really important because they take us from not just the attack on the Capitol, but take us to the war room where the strategy was being developed. So I think really important development in these subpoenas today. Yeah, let's talk about Rudy Giuliani for just a moment. So this is a part of the letter here. It says uh, the committee notes that Rudy Giuliani urged Donald Trump to direct the seizure of voting machines around the country after being told the Department of Homeland Security had no lawful, lawful authority to do so. And here's Giuliani actually on the 6th and some of his remarks on that day. Over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked the ballots that are fraudulent, and if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So, let's have trial by combat. 
Made fools of, you say, uh, Tim O'Brien. It, it appears that the person who was made a fool of was Rudy Giuliani. I mean, this was a man who used to be mayor of, you know, one of America's great cities um, and who's now been reduced to calling for trial by combat. And now he's in seems like he's in a world of hurt here. And, and the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, who was, uh, you know, charged with upholding and respecting the rule of law in one of the most powerful U.S. attorney's offices in the country. And he is correct. He has been completely made a fool of. Um, that entire architecture of about five dozen lawsuits that he and Sidney Powell conjured to try to create the idea that there was election fraud when there wasn't. The suits themselves were comically full of malapropisms and and shoddy work, but they still managed to put those onto the public stage. And I think it's worth remembering with this collection of people who've been subpoenaed now that Donald Trump will bring people like this around him again if he comes back into power. And and although they all of them, particularly these four are rodeo clowns, they were able to perpetrate one of the biggest assaults we've had on the rule of law and elections in the history of this country. And I think yeah. the fact that this committee has finally decided to use subpoena power um, beyond just the Steve Vannons of the world, but to get closer up the food chain to people who are directly advising Trump around the events of January 6th helps create um, both a chain of command and a deeper fact pattern for both the public and I hope for law enforcement uh, to understand what needs to be done to prevent something like this from occurring again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, clowns can be frightening, you know, as anybody who's freaked out by clowns will tell you. And, you know, Glenn, and, it, you know, Sidney Powell is one of the more ridiculous sort of figures in this group. But, you know, she was mounting, she with Rudy Giuliano was mounting a pretty relentless multi-pronged strategy to sort of prove this elaborate scheme that has gotten her and some other folks in trouble because they claimed that part of the scheme where they were supposedly trying to claim that we had to throw these electors out because there was all this fraud had to do with Dominion voting systems. Here is a, a little mashup of her going after this company. Dominion operators went in and injected votes and changed the whole system. They run a computer algorithm on it as needed to either flip votes, take votes out, or alter the votes to make a candidate win. It has been used all over the world to defy the will of people who wanted freedom. There is statistical evidence. There is all kinds of mathematical evidence, uh, essentially forensic evidence. Dominion and its minions and other state officials everywhere are apparently out there trying to destroy everything they can get to before we can seize it. They had this all planned, Maria. It is one huge, huge criminal conspiracy. Um, you know, Glenn, I guess the question is, is idiocy a defense here? I mean, let's just say that if the DOJ is watching what's happening on the January 6th committee, as they are putting together these sort of elements of a, of a pretty far reaching, you know, conspiracy by whether it was idiotic or not, they had a plan. They were going to say that the elections were stolen. These, these, you know, voting machines were corrupted. Therefore, in these multiple states here, take these electors instead of those electors. Is the stupidity sort of of the individual sort of pieces of it a defense against potentially the DOJ if they ever decided to wake up and get involved? You know, no, stupidity is no defense. And the, and the fact that these ridiculous claims were not plausible doesn't make them any less corrupt. And, you know, I agree with both Tim and Barb that these are important subpoenas because clearly the investigative circle is tightening uh, and it's tightening around Donald Trump, who is the hub 
And I'm hoping we're going to have the opportunity to talk about a hub and spoke conspiracy in the not too distant future, because that's the picture that's emerging. But I don't want to rain on the subpoena parade because these are important subpoenas. But let's face it, these subpoenas are only as good as the evidence they produce. We all received the, the news of the Mark Meadows subpoena with much fanfare. And of course, we are now on day 35 or 36 of the Mark Meadows indictment watch. And exactly no testimony has been taken from Mark Meadows. So these subpoenas are an important step. It makes clear that the J6 committee is serious about, you know, getting to the bottom of this. But I think we have to see what are they prepared to do if the subpoenas are ignored? Are they going to start to consider using their own inherent power of contempt to try to compel testimony? Or are they going to be happy to shuffle the people who are not complying with the subpoenas over to the Department of Justice in hopes that they will then be prosecuted? I mean, what is your opinion on that, Barb? Because that is a very good point, is that it is sort of big fanfare to say, well, we're going to subpoena Rudy Giuliani at all. But, you know, if they can't compel testimony or if they're going to spend six months, you know, battling it out in court, then sort of what's the point? Yeah. And, you know, delay has been the name of the game here. I'm sure that these lawyers will assert attorney-client privilege on its face. That makes a lot of sense. But there are a number of reasons why that doesn't apply here, one of which is the crime fraud exception. The other is that it is only communications between a lawyer and his client for the purpose of obtaining legal advice that is privileged. So lots to talk about here that's not privileged, including documents that are not privileged. But I imagine they will seek to stall. It will be interesting to see what the January 6th committee does here, um, you know, referring more to to the Justice Department, I think is not going to be a quick solution. Filing their own civil lawsuit, uh, you, you know, is not likely to move quickly. And Glenn raises an interesting point, which is, you know, use it or lose it. They have inherent contempt power. Um, maybe it's time for them to flex their muscles and use that power to enforce their own subpoenas. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, including against potentially a former vice president. Let's, let's talk about Mike Pence just for a moment. Um, and I'll, I'll, this is for you, Tim. Let, let's just listen to him because last night, Rachel Maddow did a brilliant job of going through all the vice presidents throughout modern history have all said the same thing when they certify the election. It's very sort of bland. It's like opening the envelope at the Oscars. You don't decide who won the Oscar. You just read it, right? He <laughs> added this extra language at the end of his uh, statement, which basically said, you know, there's only going to be one set of electors, by the way. And here he is doing that on January 6th. After ascertaining that the certificates are regular in form and authentic, the tellers will announce the votes cast by the electors for each state, beginning with Alabama, which the parliamentarians advise me is the only certificate of vote from that state and purports to be a return from the state that has annexed to it a certificate from an authority of that state purporting to appoint or ascertain electors. You know, Tim, just from a sort of from a political point of view, it feels like the, you know, the idea of using inherent contempt or using subpoenas or really sort of going after the president and vice president is something that at least the Democrats on the one uh, six committee are reluctant to do. Um, Liz Cheney's not reluctant to do it because she's a Republican and thinks like a Republican. But I mean, how important is it going to be to eventually hear from this man? Mike Pence is in the center of this. He clearly knew something was up because he said, by the way, there's only one set of electors. It's, it's incredibly important to hear from Mike Pence. And, and the clock is ticking, I think, as both Barb, um, Barb has pointed out and Glenn pointed out, that, that time is of the essence here. You know, it, it, with the midterms coming up, 
the net result of that election on a number of fronts, one of the net result of that election will be that this committee could simply get defenestrated at that point. Um, so they don't have all of the time in the world. They can't stretch this out like the Republicans stretched out the Benghazi hearings. Um, Mike Pence's office has said they don't believe um, he should testify because they believe that a committee's operations like this is beneath the dignity of his office, which is ridiculous. Hmm. They're exercising the powers of a congressional oversight. They've, he's also said that he feels they're too partisan. Well, they're partisan on behalf of trying to get to the truth and protect democracy. Those are good partisan values that are bipartisan, by the way. Um, thirdly, yeah, Mike Pence was under enormous pressure on January 6th from Donald Trump, from other members of Congress and from operatives in the party. And he has firsthand knowledge of what that, that sounded like and what their goals were. So his testimony is deeply important. Yeah, it's, it's it's so bipartisan. There are two Republicans on the committee who voted like 90 percent with Donald Trump, the two Trump Republicans on the committee. What Get, get, get out of here with that. Uh, Barbara McQuaid, Tim O'Brien, Glenn Kirshner, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, Senator Cory Booker joins me as the Senate begins debate on voting rights outside the Capitol. Meanwhile, demonstrators were taking a stand for voting rights and getting arrested. Latasha Brown was one of them. She joins me to talk about what happens next if the Senate fails to act. Plus, some hospitals are issuing an urgent warning. The COVID situation is so bad, they might not have a bed for you if you need life-saving care. And there are a whole bunch of adjectives to describe tonight's absolute worst, selfish, inconsiderate, and dangerous, and just a few of them. The readout continues after this. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. As the Senate begins debate on federal voting rights protections, Republicans would have you believe there's no election subversion taking place in Republican states. Today, Addison Mitchell McConnell, the man who single-handedly broke the United States Senate during the Obama presidency, had the temerity to scold Democrats for trying to stop the Republican war on voters in states across this country. The Democratic leader argues that his proposed elections takeover and his efforts to break the Senate are last resorts because of new state laws that passed in 2021, a year and a half before the 2020 election, which Democrats now call a high turnout success. The Democratic leader gave an interview claiming that evil Republicans are trying to attack voting and disenfranchise people. Once again, Mitch, please. Well, McConnell claims that this is about one party rewriting election laws. He should be referring to what his party is doing in state after state right now on party line, simple majority votes or through executive action. 
Take the so-called free state of Florida, where Chairman Ron DeSantis is doing everything he can to prevent people from voting or to outright intimidate them if they try. His latest authoritarian idea is to create, get this, a literal personal police force to oversee state elections that would answer only to him. The job of the Orwellian-titled Office of Election Crimes and Security would be to investigate, detect, apprehend, and arrest anyone for an alleged violation of election laws with the power to monitor voters and even arrest them. So does Ron plan to have his secret police arrest Trump voters? Since the heart of election fraud in Florida seems to be the MAGA-loving fantasy land senior community called the Villages, where four people have been arrested just in the past month alone for casting fraudulent votes for Donald Trump. The junior Don has also taken it upon himself to meddle in the state's congressional redistricting process, submitting his own map, which you guessed it, dilutes the voting power of people of color, cutting in half the number of majority African-American districts, splitting up Hispanic voters in South Florida districts and giving Republicans an eight seat advantage. I guess when President Biden spoke of whether Republicans wanted to be Bull Connor, DeSantis was at home raising his hand. Me, me, I want to be Bull Connor. And then there's Texas where the sweeping Republican voting law enacted just last year, SB1, is already suppressing the vote ahead of the Lone Star State's March 1st primaries. Election officials in some of the state's largest and mostly urban and diverse counties are rejecting an unprecedented number of mail-in ballot applications, including more than half in one county alone, because they don't meet voter ID requirements under the new law. And since the law required new voter registration forms, it's led to a shortage and fewer registration forms available to voting groups. There's also Virginia, which seems intent on turning itself into Florida North, now that Trumpy wolf in sheep's clothing Glenn Youngkin is in the governor's mansion. Republican lawmakers have filed 20 bills, 20, restricting access to absentee voting after record numbers of Virginians did just that, thanks to the state Democrats expanding voting options. And a short time ago, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer cited these efforts as he outlined plans for a final vote on voting rights bills. If the Republicans block cloture on the legislation before us, I will put forward a proposal to change the rules to allow for a talking filibuster on this legislation, as recommended by a number of our colleagues who have been working on this reform for a long time. Joining me now is Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. And on that note, Senator, thank you for being here. Is, uh, I don't know if you've talked to Manchin and Cinema lately, um, but is a talking filibuster something you think that those two would go for? There's no reason to have that expectation. Uh, what is good, though, is that we are tomorrow going to be on the Senate floor, all 50 of us, for bills that we support to address what has become an epidemic problem, particularly in red states, which are uh, dozens of laws passing, making it more difficult to vote, fueled by lies that there's problems, whether with in-person voting fraud, more likely to be struck by lightning, or that somehow Donald Trump uh, was the rightful winner of the last election. And so uh, we're going to all vote on that first tomorrow at five o'clock, and then we're going to vote on a rule change, uh, which we will probably get 48 votes to say that the filibuster, not we're not getting rid of it, we're trying to say that you can't just sit in your office and phone it in, that you actually have to have an actual filibuster and stand on the floor and debate a bill and talk about why uh, you don't want it to proceed. 
You know, it's going to be interesting to hear if uh, they bother to explain themselves why that's a problem, why they think that they should be able to phone in a filibuster. That seems to be the mansion cinema position. But I want to take you back for just a moment uh, to April of 2017, when the president was a Republican, Donald Trump, and Mitch McConnell had a very different view on whether or not you could nuke the filibuster to get the things he wanted in this in which in, in, in this particular case, he wanted Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Take a listen. We need to restore the norms and traditions of the Senate and get past this unprecedented partisan filibuster. Therefore, I raise a point of order that the vote on cloture under the precedent set on November 21st, 2013, is a majority vote on all nominations. Isn't it accurate that Mitch McConnell is a situational ethicist? He does not believe anything that he says, because when he wanted to get rid of the filibuster to get judges, he was like, get rid of it. So... I don't I, I find it hard to understand why Democrats don't do, do they understand that they're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in anything other than getting what he wants. But it's, it's beyond even Mitch McConnell. I mean, he's changed it for Supreme Court voters. He changed it. He found a way around it to pass that toxic Trump tax cut. But it's been changed over the years, 166 times uh, for things that, in my opinion, uh, are far trivial when it compares with the most fundamental aspect of a democracy is that one person, one vote. And now we have a reality. Republicans are saying we don't need this, but the facts are the facts. Are we comfortable living in a nation where the average black voter right now in America has to wait twice as long to vote as the average white voter? What does that mean in places from Texas to uh, Georgia where you see people having two, three, five, seven, eight, nine hour waits? What does that do? It discourages people from voting. And that's not the only laws that are being passed, finally tailored to discourage certain populations from young people, Native Americans, African Americans. These are the facts. And so, yeah. again, we've changed the filibuster before and altered it for everything from treaties to arms sales. We need to actually change the filibuster to preserve the right to vote in America. You know, there's a question of whether or not moral persuasion has any 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 power anymore over um, your Democratic, uh, you know, in quotes, um, colleagues, Manchin and Cinema. Um, there are a set of pastors, um, and I'll hold this up just for the audience, um, from New Birth and other and other uh, Georgia congregations who've written to them. And part of what they write in this letter is they said, "We've watched in utter awe as both Manchin and Cinema, as you have continued to express unwavering support for the filibuster, putting this arcane legislative procedure ahead of our own democracy. We want to make it clear that you're uncompromising." stance has prevented needed action from the Senate on a host of issues, roadblocked the voice of America's majority, and has now been used to block needed voting rights and our very democracy is at risk. They obviously do not give a damn about that. But you know, you work with these uh, Republicans. Are there two Republicans, in your view, who might be open to doing what Manchin and Cinema will not and go ahead and make the changes needed to the filibuster in order to have voting rights? Are there two um, Republicans at all? I, I know of none. And again, I know there's a lot of focus on two Democrats, but the reality is we have 50 Republicans who do not believe uh, that we have a problem with voting in America. And we do. From the dark money pouring in, Republicans are blocking, simply disclosing, having us know who's spending money in these elections. The gerrymandering problem we have across this country that's disenfranchising voters uh, or diluting their power, uh, Republicans are against that. They have fought and blocked and stopped and are doing it right now. And so the question is, is what do we do? And the one thing I want to correct you on, Joy, because you've been so spot on uh, during this whole broadcast, the one thing you said is tomorrow is not a final vote on anything. 
Senator Schumer and I were talking today. We have not mm -hmm. yet begun to fight. We have a lot more tools in our toolbox. Uh, I've been encouraging them, okay, we, we're, we're stopping here, but let's start bringing up each of the provisions of this bill one at a time and make it even harder for them to vote against some of these common sense things that people on both sides of the political aisle support. We cannot stop fighting. It is a dis it is a disrespect to our ancestors, from Goodman, Cheney, and Schwarner to all those voters who got beat back on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We never gave up this fight, and we're not going to give it up right now. That is an excellent idea. Look forward to you all uh, putting the individual pieces out and making people uh, take a stand on them and vote on them. Uh, excellent idea. Senator Cory Booker, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. And joining me now is Janai Nelson, Associate Director Counsel and soon to be president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I want to congratulate you on that. That are big, big shoes to fill uh, our friend Sherilyn Eiffels. Um, but you are, are well, re re well endowed to do that, madam. So thank you for being here. Let, let's go to Florida real quick. Let's talk about this. The idea that there will now be a secret police, essentially a secret police force answerable only to the governor, which can monitor voters, arrest voters, maybe intimidate voters. And we know which voters um, DeSantis would like to do that to. How is that possibly legal? Well, Joy, it's not. What we know is that this idea of trying to defend election integrity has been used as a guise for election interference in many, many ways. Uh, this may remind you very much of the Presidential Commission on Election Integrity that was started in 2017 by Trump and was swiftly disbanded when Several civil rights groups, including LDF, sued and pointed out that that type of commission, that type of election interference is unlawful. Um, what we are most concerned about is that even the idea of this, the, the constitution of such a unit would have such a broad chilling effect, even if it did nothing, just its mere existence would be a threat to our elections because it would make voters afraid to exercise their right to vote for fear that they may ultimately be targeted by this government uh, governor led commission. And it is deeply, deeply troubling, probably one of the worst assaults that I've seen in this war in our democracy today. Yeah. And just to put it up again here, 19 states have enacted 34 restrictive voting laws. We put this up often so you can see where they are. They're mostly they are all Republican led states. The Brennan Center says 152 restrictive voting bills in 18 states were carried over into 2022. It's just all over the country. And, and I guess what I'm concerned about, and I wonder if this concerns you, um, Janai, um, if these laws wound up, you know, you all and other groups, Mark Elias and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund sue, these are ultimately going to wind up potentially before a Supreme Court that has said, as long as you don't openly say it's racial, as long as you say it's about partisanship, they've essentially said that you can do anything you want to voters. You can any outrage, any indignity. You're, it's fine. You could probably do bubbles in a bar of soap at this point, as long as you don't say it's racial. Are you concerned that we no longer have that backstop of protection in the Supreme Court because six of them don't believe in voting rights? Well, we know that to be true. We know that the Supreme Court abandoned any responsibility that it had to examine partisanship in our election system where it's extreme and it's corrosive, like forms of partisan gerrymandering. The court abdicated its duty in 2019 in Rucho versus Common Cause. But I would like to believe that even this court would recognize election subversion when it sees it. This is not just 
limiting voting rights. This is not just making it more difficult to vote. This is actually threatening with intimidation and law enforcement, uh, uh, a threat and action of the state to harm voters who want to exercise a fundamental right. This is yeah. beyond the panel. And I, I'm hopeful that not only will these these challenges be successful in court, but that the Supreme Court will understand that its own integrity, its own credibility is on the line when it allows these types of laws to stand. I, I, I await uh, DeSantis declaring Republicans and Republicanism to be the state party of Florida and make it illegal to vote for anybody else. I mean, I, I think there's no limit to what it, what he might do, but we'll see what happens. Janine Nelson, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. Uh, what a world. Um, still ahead, courageous voting rights activists are getting into good trouble, putting their lives and freedom on the line to protect our precious democracy. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. The showdown in Congress over protecting voting rights comes a day after the country honored the memory of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As he once declared, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Well, today we're seeing people living up to those immortal words. You have Joe Madison, the 72-year-old activist, on the 72nd day of his hunger strike for Congress to pass laws protecting voting rights. And on the Capitol steps today, a group of voting rights activists on their own hunger strike. Dozens of them were zip-tied and arrested. We're seeing such activism all across this country as people also heed the call from another civil rights legend whose name appears on the voting rights bill, the late Congressman John Lewis. Before his death last year, he was known to urge everyone of conscience to speak up, speak out, get in the way, get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. Joining me now is Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, who was arrested at the Capitol voting rights, uh, at the Capitol um, protesting today for voting rights, getting in good trouble for real. Um, Latasha, talk about what happened today. What was your message? What were the messages of the, of the activists who were there and getting arrested? And we have video so of that happening, as a matter of fact. So thank you for having me, Joy. Today, we want to send a message loud and clear that we are, in fact, supporting. We want to see voting rights passed now. You know, at the same time that it was happening at 
um, uh, the vote was going on starting at noon, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were on the steps of the Capitol to lift our voice, just as in the spirit of Dr. King to say that we are standing for voting rights. That it is the message to the U.S. Senate that we will not stop. We will not turn around. We also wanted to send a message to the American people that if it is that when we're seeing this, this happen in our Senate, that we have to stand up as people, as citizens, as voters in this country and say, no, we deserve voting rights and do whatever it takes to make sure that we secure voting rights. We, we've had, um, you know, our friend Joe Madison, uh, and both of our friend Joe Madison on a hunger strike for 72 days. You know, he's in his 70s. We've had more people hunger striking. Pastors are doing it. Uh, pastors out of Georgia sent letters to Mansion and Cinema. Moral persuasion doesn't seem to be working. Um, Stevie Wonder came out today and made a statement saying, why can't you protect voting rights? At, at a certain point, we have to start asking what next? Because, you know, we did have um, Senator Cory Booker come out and say there's no reason to expect Mansion and Cinema to even go for a talking filibuster. They don't want any changes to it. They clearly don't want anything to do with voting rights. What do we do next if they don't, if this doesn't pass? What do we do? You know, I love to quote what Reverend Barber says. He talks about that our deadline is not today. Our deadline um, is victory. That's where we're seeking to go. And so I also think that we can't let the Republicans off the hook. There were 16 Republicans that actually voted for the voting rights reauthorization. Where are yep. they now? We have to really speak to them as well. And so I think it's really important that we as people continue to have a actions for their civil disobedience, just like we saw today with the hunger strikers and unpack and until freedom and black voters matter and several organizations for people's campaigns and others have been protesting all the last 10 months we're going to be relentless and that's what it's going to take i think we continue to push this forward yeah don't don't let them rest until they do what's right speaking of republicans um one option of course is repeal and replace to say that you don't want to you know support the rights of people to have you know anti-poverty legislation and voting rights fine you can go um, there are these Republican seats are up. Um, Richard Burr in North Carolina. There's the Ohio seat. Rob Portman is retiring. You've got Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin and Alaska. If in theory, Democrats were to be able to hold Arizona, Georgia, Nevada and New Hampshire, they could simply make mansion and cinema irrelevant. At this point, how how hard will it be? To raise the voters again to say, listen, we need to do this again, that the answer is more voting and get rid of these people who are in the way. You know, it is a uphill battle. We've said this all along that but we're yeah. seeing the attacks on the local level, the, the state level. And now we're seeing it all across this nation that it is going to be an uphill battle. But the one thing that gives me hope is uh, all day today, even since we actually released, I've been getting phone calls. People are frustrated and they're upset. And so I'm hoping that all of that energy and that anger turns into a kind of energy that will actually help move us forward and move people out of the way that have been standing in the way so that we can capture that there can be capturing of new seats of people that will stand and have the courage to stand for voter voting rights in this country. Yeah. And in 2024, you know, Elizabeth Warren has said, you know, maybe the people who need to also be repealed and replace are mansion and cinema. I mean, at this at a certain point, do Democrats need to stop, you know, maybe take the, you know, the sort of sticker of safety off of some of these Democrats as well? 
in primary. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's why we where we are right now. I think it's going to take people of integrity. It's going to take people of courage. You know, we've said all the while that Senator Manchin has been disingenuous. He's quite frankly been a liar in this process. We never thought that he was actually sincere about this. And, and here it is, Senator Simna saying that she's connected to the filibuster, but doesn't support voting rights. How is it that on one hand, you support an element, you support something that has been standing in the way of civil rights, but on the other hand, you're not supportive. The bottom line, is I think they're opportunists, they're disingenuous, and we need to send a message to them. We need to send them home. And we need to also bring people to Congress that are going to have integrity and know that they are representing the people. Yeah. And from the school board all the way up to the top, maybe repeal and replace of the, these people who don't want to do the right thing. Maybe that is one of the strategies. If people can even vote and get their votes counted. That's the other piece. Latasha Brown, thank you for all you do. Appreciate you being here as always. And tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, more hospitals find themselves in dire circumstances as the Omicron variant spreads like wildfire. We'll talk to a doctor at a hospital that's completely out of ICU beds. Next, stay with us. So here's what happens when you stop caring about COVID. The health system begins to crumble, and Oklahoma City is a prime example. If you need critical care in Oklahoma City, you may have to wait in the hallway, or maybe even in a closet, because they are completely out of ICU beds. Hospital staff are hamstrung by their own COVID cases and struggling with the psychological trauma of this unending nightmare. Officials from four of Oklahoma City's leading health systems are now begging, pleading for the public's help. Our emergency departments are overflowing. Our healthcare professionals are exhausted. We have been working nearly nonstop for over two years now. Omicron cases are rising faster than previous variants, and we are struggling to keep up. We have zero ICU beds and no inpatient beds available in Oklahoma City. It feels and sometimes even looks like a war zone. Cases have risen so rapidly, we have to care for patients in hallways, sometimes closets. Oklahomans, what I will ask of you is this. Please work with us until we are on the other side of this surge. Despite those pleas, 60 percent, 60 percent of eligible Oklahomans haven't received a booster, even though boosters help fight against the Omicron variant. Health officials are urging people to avoid the ER if it's a non-emergency or if they're looking for a COVID test, which you can now order online, by the way, through the government's new website, which did a soft launch today, but will be fully functional tomorrow. Please order one. Joining me now is Dr. Kersey Winfrey, Chief Medical Officer for SSM Health St. Anthony, which is one of the hospital systems that is indeed out of ICU beds. Um, and Dr. Winfrey, thank you so much for being here. Oklahoma is the 15th worst, st- worst state when it comes to deaths, and it is the 23rd worst state when it comes to COVID cases. Um, Oklahomans are not getting vaccinated at a rate that would that would be you know helpful to you all. So in this letter, which you are a signatory to, you write, the Oklahoma City healthcare system is at a breaking point. Soon you or a loved one may need us for life-saving care, whether it's for a stroke, emergency appendectomy, or trauma from a car accident, and we might not be able to help. Talk about what you all are going through um, in Oklahoma City. So these are unprecedented times. Uh, You have a very contagious virus that's spreading rapidly through our community. Uh, It's affecting lots of people with chronic illnesses and making them sicker and in need of hospital-based care. Uh, That is not just my hospital system. It 
is involving all the hospital systems within the greater Oklahoma City and within Oklahoma in general. Uh, the numbers that you reference as it relates to the case rates certainly play into this. I think the other factors that play into this, and it's the perfect storm, the convergence of uh, really a lot of adversity with regards to staffing. Uh, Dr. Watson referenced that we are very, very uh, limited with staffing, and this is putting a stress on the system. It can't be overlooked when you're talking about a virus this contagious. It's not just limited to the patients that we take care of, but it's also affecting our staff and their families. So that just compounds our um, challenges with limited staffing. So uh, just to be clear, we're dealing. Oh. Just, just really oh, quick ahead. to be clear, the, the people that you're seeing sort of flooding now in your hospitals and making it so that there are no more ICU beds, are these unvaccinated people or, are, or is it sort of a mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated or are they mostly unvaccinated? So right now, 80 to 90 percent of the people that we have in the hospital needing hospital-based care with COVID-related complications, um, 80 to 90 percent are unvaccinated. So we clearly recognize there's a pattern, a trend, even more than a trend. It's, it's almost predictable that uh, people without vaccines cannot mount uh, the same immune response and, and, and beat back Omicron. And does that mean that, let's say, somebody has a car accident uh, or a heart attack? What happens to them if they try to go to the hospital in Oklahoma City right now? So we are looking at everything very carefully because we do not want to not meet the needs of all Oklahomans uh, whenever they need it and whenever they need it urgently. So we are looking very carefully at uh, ways that we can extend our capacity for taking care of these conditions. Uh, we're looking at ways that we can keep the resources open that are going to uh, allow us to be there for people whenever they need us, uh, whether that's emergently or whether that's electively. It is not easy. It requires a lot of uh, examinations of these cases on a one-to-one -one basis, on a daily basis, uh, looking at the cases that have medical necessity and time sensitivity associated with them. So, that's pretty much an example of how we're approaching the elective things that we want to keep keep going. And what's the morale level of your staff right now? Well, they are beat down. Uh, it has been just an incredible two years, and many of them have been with us for the duration. Uh, they have worked tirelessly in intensive care units, uh, wearing PPE that is very uncomfortable, uh, watching people uh, really pass away in isolation. Um, we've had uh, a lot of people decide to take a pause and leave the, uh, the workforce, and that has created some staffing problems for us. Um, we were barely out of uh, recovery from some of the staffing problems, barely recovering from some of the staffing problems with the Delta uh, surge, uh, and then all of a sudden this wildfire uh, called Omicron uh, hit us. And so it's been um, a double whammy, so to speak, as it relates to these last six months. If there's, if there's someone listening right now who has refused up to now to get vaccinated, what would you say to them in your city? So it is with compassion that I ask you to reconsider your decision about vaccination. Uh, vaccinations have uh, a time-held advantage of protecting us from these kinds of infections. Vaccinations save lives. Uh, the science behind vaccinations are sound. Um, it does um, create an advantage for you. And that is an advantage that doesn't just help with you as an individual, it helps with our community.
Yeah, absolutely. And to save the health system in this country, people are going to have to be a little bit more selfless. Hopefully they will listen to you. Dr. Kersey Winfrey, thank you for all that you do, you and your staff. God bless. Thank you very much. All right. Up next, it is tonight's absolute worst, as if we've already not gotten through the absolute worst. There's been a lot of absolute worst tonight. But the heartlessness here, whoa, the heartlessness here, it is just infuriating. We'll be right back. Trump appointed Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch to the seat that Mitch McConnell stole for him by nuking the filibuster after denying Merrick Garland even a hearing. Gorsuch loves COVID, which makes him the perfect, perfect Republican. He thinks very little of coronavirus precautions. He joined the majority opinion blocking the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for private businesses and joined the dissent against vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. When the court didn't block Maine's healthcare mandate last fall, he went full libertarian writing, stemming the spread of COVID-19 qualifies as a compelling interest. At the same time, I would acknowledge that there, that this interest cannot qualify as such forever. Today, we have additional treatments and more appear near. If human nature and history teaches anything, it is that civil liberties face grave risks when governments proclaim indefinite states of emergency. As law professor Andrew Koppelman wrote in The Hill, the wonderful new interventions that he cites so triumphantly have been less successful than everyone hoped, in large part because the very vaccine resistance that he's trying to abet is making it difficult. Gorsuch also wrote the dissent when the court refused to block New York's vaccine mandate, stressing that religious people seeking exemptions due to their anti-abortion beliefs are not anti-vaxxers. Now, we know a lot of people might have one position in public, but feel very differently around people in their lives. And we've heard for years that despite their differences, the members of the Supreme Court are just one big family. But that's absolutely not the case with Gorsuch. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports that after the Omicron surge began, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who has diabetes, did not feel safe in close proximity to people who were unmasked. Chief Justice John Roberts, understanding that, in some form, asked all of the justices to mask up. But Gorsuch refused to do so, which means that Sotomayor has been forced to attend oral arguments over the phone. Every other justice is masking up, even Clarence Thomas, who doesn't seem to care about anybody. But nope. Not Gorsuch. He could not be bothered to extend a life-saving courtesy to his co-worker. And it is as serious as life and death because diabetes is a huge risk factor. A report last summer found that 40% of people who died from COVID-19 had diabetes. There's a chance that those numbers might look different with vaccination and Omicron. But the CDC still lists diabetes as a condition where people are more likely to get severely ill. So for having zero Zero problem risking the life of your colleague because you just don't feel like putting a mask on. You, Neil Gorsuch, are both a rotten co-worker, dangerous to be near in a pandemic, and tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.